Today we're looking at Psalm 3. Now according to the title, a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom his son, this uh, psalm has a particular historical context in the life of David. The story of Absalom's rebellion against David is told in 2 Samuel 13-19. to Of course, the book of 2 Samuel is all about the reign of King David. And the book divides into two halves. The first half recounts his rise and all of the successful things that happened at the beginning of his reign. And the second half of the book is mostly negative, and it recounts his fall. And the crucial chapter 11 is the turning point. <clears throat> it contains the story of how David committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then, when she was found to be with child, how he conspired to have her husband murdered to cover it up. In chapter 12, the prophet Nathan confronts David with his story of the rich man who stole a lamb from a poor man in order to entertain his guests for no other reason than the fact that he was powerful and could get away with it. But David was outraged, and he demanded to know who that rich man was. And Nathan the prophet confronts him and says, You are the man. Confronted by this accusation, David immediately confessed his sin and repented in prayer and fasting. Although the Lord forgave David, there were evil consequences of his actions that the Lord did not prevent. Nathan prophesied, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your house, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. And in chapters 13 to 20 of Second Samuel, we see the evil that arose out of the house of David. First, Absalom's son, David, Absalom, David's son, killed his half-brother Amon to uh, avenge the incestuous rape of Absalom's sister Tamar. Then Absalom fled to Geshar, which is a territory north and west of the Sea of Galilee, out of the reach of David. But after three years, Absalom returned to Jerusalem and was reconciled to his father and was allowed to live there. But soon after this, Absalom led a coup against his father and attempted to seize the throne for himself. He had himself declared king at Hebron, where David had first been declared king 40 years earlier. But Absalom underestimated the resolve of his aging father. Initially, David fled Jerusalem, but he rallied his loyal troops under Joab, and they engaged Absalom's forces in battle. As a result, Absalom, Absalom was killed, as described in 2 Samuel chapter 18, and David was devastated. Now, I took a course on the Psalms when I was in seminary, and I was taught that they were poems from ancient Israel that are interesting to us because they express the feelings of people from that era, and we might find them useful in expressing our laments and our praise as well, and, well, that's pretty much it. That's all there is to the Psalter. Many years later, I read the Rule of St. Benedict, and I noticed that he decreed that his monks would chant the entire 150 psalms every single week. I found that puzzling. Why spend more time in the psalms than any other biblical book? Why not the New Testament? Why not the Gospels? Why would the psalms be so important to monks? It was soon after that that I began to read the Church Fathers, in particular Augustine, on the Psalms. And I discovered that the Fathers read the Psalms in a completely different way than I had learned in seminary. They read the Psalms not just as poetry, but as prophecy. I also learned what I now realize I should have learned in New Testament courses, but didn't, namely that 
New Testament writers quote the Psalms over 400 times. And in most cases, they interpret the Psalms as prophecies of the Messiah. And so the fathers were imitating the New Testament writers in interpreting the Psalms Christologically. All of a sudden, the relevance of Benedict's instruction to the monks and his rule to chant the Psalter continuously made sense. It was a way of focusing on Jesus the Messiah. This discovery revolutionized the way I read the Psalms, and to this day I am absolutely fascinated by the Psalter. Reading it is not a matter of examining the poetry of a group of foreign people from a faraway place in a long-ago era. Instead, it is a matter of entering into the joy and excitement of our common faith in the Messiah. The Book of Psalms was put together in its present form in the context of the exile, as Israel experienced God's judgment on her covenant on faithfulness. As faithful Israelites meditated on Scripture, they clung to the unconditional promise God had made to David, that a descendant of his would sit on the throne in Jerusalem forever. We fast forward to the day of Pentecost. And Peter, in his sermon, in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, he quotes Psalm 16, and then he says this about David. Quote, Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Unquote. That's Acts 2, 30 and 31. So, Psalm 3 is about David. But Psalm 3 is also about Christ. David is speaking as a prophet. In Augustine's sermon on the psalm, he interprets it as being both about David and also as being about the Messiah. But amazingly, he doesn't stop there. He gives, he takes, he gives us a third reading that sees it as speaking about the people of the Messiah. So that makes three levels on which the psalm can be read. Psalm 3 is about David, it's about the Messiah, and it's about us. Let's look at these three levels of meaning in the psalm, and uh, let's think about this as I read it. Psalm 3. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. That you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. So we begin with the fact that the psalm is obviously a record of the prayer of David from an era in his life, late in his reign, when he is facing the most serious threat to his kingship, namely the rebellion led by his son Absalom. This rebellion was very different from David's struggles at the beginning of his reign, uh, before he ascended to the throne, or when Saul pursued him and, and, uh, and was trying to kill him. To, to face opposition from Saul was quite understandable for David. Although it was dangerous for him, 
There was no element of personal betrayal in it. But to be betrayed by one's own son must have been extremely painful for him. Notice that in verses 1 and 2, he speaks of the, the many who are rising against me. Three times he speaks of the many, but he does not name his son. He does not name Absalom, probably because it is too painful to do so. Of course, Absalom was not alone. Many of the leaders of Israel were behind him. So it was literally many who were rising up against him. In verses 3 and 4, he cries out to the Lord his shield and the glory and the lifter of his head. The Lord gave him his throne, and he calls on the Lord to defend it. In verse 5, he writes that he lay, he lay down and slept, and then woke again, for the Lord sustained me. This is interesting because we take for granted that we're going to lay our head on the pillow at night and wake up in the morning in peace. But this was not something David was able to take for granted in this situation. If he goes to sleep tonight, will he wake in the morning? Or will he die? Before, will he be killed in his sleep? Will he die before the morning light? It's obscure to, to know, is, is he speaking of literally trouble sleeping? Or is he speaking of something more? Was David referring to something beyond himself at this point? We shall see. In verses 6 to 8, he speaks with confidence in the Lord, that the Lord will save him, strike down all his enemies, and bless his people. In verse 7, he seems to rejoice in the defeat of his enemies. But it's interesting that if you go back to 2 Samuel 18.33, where David is informed of the death of his son, he cries out, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom. Would that I had died instead of you, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Even though his son was the leader of the rebellion, David hoped that the rebellion could be put down without his son being killed. He loved his son deeply, even while his son chose to make himself his enemy. So, we can go back and read this psalm again on a second level. The, the church up until the modern period has always read this psalm as a prophecy of the Messiah. So we can read it on this level as well. In verses 1 and 2, we see the Messiah crying out to God for salvation. He is surrounded by his enemies, and they're taunting him, saying, There is no salvation for him and God. We are reminded of Christ on the cross, surrounded by his enemies, and how he was taunted. He saved others, but he can't even save himself. In verses 3 and 4, it says that he, he cries aloud to the Lord, which for a reader of the Gospels reminds us of the cry of dereliction. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it is true that the Lord answers him, and he sleeps. In verse 5, he lays down, but he wakes again. He sleeps, which is a, a metaphor for death, but he awakes, which is like resurrection. And then in verses 6 to 8, we see the final triumph of the Messiah over all his enemies. Um, uh, I will not be afraid of those who have set themselves about me. Arise, O Lord, strike all my enemies. In the life of David, we see a pattern that is replicated in the life of Christ. There are many points of comparison, and the one who studies the Psalter extensively just comes upon 
one after another comparison that holds between the life of David and the life of Christ. But two we want to mention here. First, you notice that David's own son rebelled against him, along with many of his own people. In the Gospel of John, we're told in John 1 that, that the Messiah came unto his own, and his own received him not. The people of God rejected God's Messiah and called for his crucifixion. Jesus said to his enemies one time, he said, Which of the prophets did your forefathers not stone? Uh, the people of Israel rejected Yahweh over and over and over again. They rejected the prophets that Yahweh sent to them. And finally, when Yahweh came in the person of the incarnate Son, they rejected him as well. Then, in John 18, verse 1, we read a little detail. that on the night before his crucifixion, Jesus in traveling from the place where they had the Last Supper in the old city of Jerusalem, he crossed the Kidron Brook and went up the hill to the Garden of Gethsemane. He did this after being rejected by the majority of his people. And in doing so, he was literally following in the footsteps of David, who, according to 2 Samuel 15.23, fled across the Kidron Brook on his way to the Jordan River with a small band of loyal followers um, when Absalom appeared to get the upper hand in the first stage of the rebellion. In Psalm 3, David's life is a foreshadowing of the life of the Messiah. The king comes to Israel. Israel rejects her king. He is betrayed by his own son. Jesus has no son, but he is betrayed by one of his most intimate followers, a member of the Twelve, Judas. The Psalms are all about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and they prepare the heart of the spiritually discerning reader for the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. But there is a third level on which this psalm can be read. It's about David's own life, and it's about the Messiah, but it's also about the church. David prefigures the suffering that was central to the life of the Messiah. And those who belong to Messiah Jesus will remember the words he said to his disciples in the upper room on the night before he was crucified, just before he left the upper room and crossed the Kidron Brook on his way uh, up to the, the Garden of Gethsemane. He said to his disciples, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But all these things they do to you, they will do to you on the, on the account of my name. All these things they will do to you on account of my name. John 15:20. Jesus told his disciples to deny themselves, take up their cross, and come follow him. Mark 8, 34. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul gives us his theology of the church as the body of Christ. He says that Christ is the head of the body, and we are the various parts of the body. And so when one part of the body suffers, the whole body suffers. This is why the risen Lord Jesus, when he appears to Saul on the road to Damascus in Acts 9, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Christ is one with his body, 
and his body is one with him. If he is persecuted, we suffer with him. If we are persecuted, he suffers along with us. The church is called to suffer as we follow our Lord. In the world, he says, you shall have persecution. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Our suffering as Christians has meaning because it unites us to Christ. Non-Christians suffer too. Everybody in this world suffers. But non-Christians have the added burden of suffering meaninglessly. A few years ago, uh, some people went to the campus of Princeton University and they did some uh, random interviews on the street and they asked students the question, in your opinion, what is worth dying for? One young woman, her answer was especially poignant. She paused and and thought, and then finally said, I don't think anything is worth dying for. Well, if you're a, a modern materialistic person, if you believe that this world is all there is, there's no life after death, you don't believe in the soul, you don't believe in absolute good and evil, for such a person, death is meaningless. Death is horrifying. Um, the closer you get to it, the more frightening it becomes. It's, it, it has no purpose. It has no meaning. There's nothing beyond it. Death is death, and suffering are just are just evil. This is why people are so uh, open to euthanasia because because they can't see how suffering could have any positive meaning or purpose. And so, if your life is characterized by suffering, you might as well end it. Well, Christians die, suffer too. Christians even die. We die physically, that is. But we don't die for nothing. Our suffering is not meaningless. We suffer because we are united to Christ. And we live in a sinful, Christ-denying world. And in a Christ-denying world, a world that is rejecting God and rejecting Christ, sin is... It leads to suffering. It causes suffering. We know why suffering is in the world. We know why people die, why people struggle with, with persecution, not just persecution, but even, even physical sickness and, and even relational stress and, and problems. All the kinds of suffering that people endure in this world we endure the, these things because we live in a fallen world. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. The world is not unfallen. It's not pristine. It's not straight from the hands of the good God. It has had a catastrophe happen to it. And as a result, the world is bent. The world is, is, is broken. The world is, is evil. And so we suffer as a result of that. But because we know Christ and because we have been forgiven and because we have a relationship with God that we know will go on into eternity beyond death, suffering can never be the same for us. Death can never mean the same thing to us as it does for non-Christians. Our job is to be the body of Christ and to bear witness to him who has saved us from our sins and in whom we put our trust in life and in death. We need to point others to him for as long as our Lord chooses to leave us here. Well, 
this psalm is not just some ancient people and their feelings about the circumstances of their day and how they responded to them. This psalm is about our faith. This psalm is a psalm that we as Christians can pray when we are in trouble. That's what it's there for. As Paul says in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, he says these things were written for us. There's a sense in which, of course, the, David wrote the psalm for himself and his contemporaries and for probably for use in the temple. But, but that's not, that does not exhaust the meaning of the psalm. Because the psalm is inspired by the Holy Spirit, because it is a, a, it has a divine author speaking through the human author, it has a meaning not just for the people of David's generation, but it has a meaning for the people of God in every generation. We should thank the Lord for the Holy Scriptures given to us by the Holy Spirit through the prophets and apostles for our instruction and blessing. This is the prayer of one who suffers at the hands of the enemies of God. It is especially precious to the one who suffers the pain of personal betrayal. It reminds us that we are servants of the suffering servant. It reassures us that our suffering has purpose and meaning, and it gives us hope that one day we will be raised up by the Lord who is our salvation. For we can say with David and with the Messiah and with all the Messiah's people, those who in ancient Israel looked forward to the Messiah and those in, in the time since Christ who looked back to the Messiah, we can say with all of them, truly salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen.